We have the privilege of hearing our scripture read today in Spanish and in English. So I'm going to invite Alex and Vivi, and they're going to come and read for us, and then Pastor Shane's going to preach for us. Buenos días. Good morning. Estaremos leyendo eh, Hechos, capítulo 2, del verso 42 a 47. Today's reading is from Acts 2, 42 through 47. Y decidieron vivir como una gran familia, y cada día los apóstoles compartían con ellos las enseñanzas acerca de Dios y de Jesús, y también celebraban la cena del Señor y oraban juntos. Al ver los milagros y las maravillas que hacían los apóstoles, la gente se quedaba asombrada. Los seguidores de Jesús compartían unos con otros lo que tenían, vendían sus propiedades y repartían el dinero entre todos. A cada uno le daban según lo que necesitaba. Además, todos los días iban al templo y celebraban la cena del Señor, y compartían la comida con cariño y alegría. Juntos alababan a Dios, y todos en la ciudad los querían. Cada día el Señor hacía que muchos creyeran en Él y se salvaran. De ese modo, el grupo de sus seguidores se iba haciendo cada vez más grande. And they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Thank you, Wingerts. That was lovely. It's always an encouragement, uh, especially as we're going through Acts, to uh, which talks so much about the gospel going out to all nations, and to hear from folks like Vivi and the others that have uh, read for us um, in other languages. So it's a great reminder of what we're doing here in Acts and what we're talking about. Good morning, Sound City, before I go any further. I'm Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. If any of you, uh, if I've not had the chance to meet any of you just yet, I'll look forward to doing so. And today, as you've uh, figured out by now, um, and if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we're in this series in the book of Acts, and we're actually, as of today, one month uh, into that series, four weeks in to our sermon series in Acts. And what's increasingly coming into focus for us in our series is that the book of Acts, it marks a pretty important change of season or an inflection point in the history of God's people. By way of review, before we get into what comes next, uh, in week one, Pastor John unpacked the first chunk of chapter one for us, picking up the storyline of Jesus right where we see the gospel accounts leave off in the days just following Jesus' resurrection. And here we saw Jesus, after showing his authority even over death, we see him spending 40 days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. We recounted Jesus' command to his disciples to remain there in Jerusalem and to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we closed out week one by uh, remembering together the ascension of Jesus up into the heavens. Then in pastor er, in week two, we had Pastor Steve with us. And uh, we finished up our walk through chapter one in week two. And he was uh, bringing us into what he called an early church business meeting amongst the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the apostles and the other followers of Jesus that were with them, where 
through the disciples' reliance on God and their reliance on his sovereignty, we saw Judas's replacement, Matthias, chosen. In week three then, last week, Rabbi Matt led us through the, the lion's share of chapter two, all the way up through verse 41. And we talked about the true story of the Holy Spirit's coming and the, the true story of the miraculous tongues of fire. Tongues here means, it's glossa, it means languages. So these are languages of fire that accompanied the Spirit's coming. And we talked about Peter's gospel sermon to this huge crowd of Jewish peoples who'd come to Jerusalem from all corners of the known world to be part of Pentecost. And then finally, we heard the story of the connection uh, that is important and that was made in that, uh, in that time, in that text, about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the connection to the salvations that would come right after that. About 3,000 people who God called to himself and saved at that time, the text says. And then that brings us to today. And a turning of our attention toward what comes next in these final verses of Acts 2, and that's verses 42 through 47. But before we dig any further into any of that, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help and favor this morning uh, as we learn together. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the day that you've given us and for the opportunity to worship you this morning. I pray that all our worship this morning would uh, make much of you for your glory and our good. I pray that you'd give me precisely the words that you'd have me say and that I would only preach that which is in keeping with your word and with your spirit's leading. Show us your favor today, Father, we pray. Teach each of us precisely what you brought us here to learn about you and about ourselves today. And give us joy and peace and rest this morning, Lord, as you lead us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So, first things first, let's talk about vampires. Because when you think of Acts 2, certainly you think of vampires, right? So I'll tell you a story. It was just before the time when God drew me to himself and saved me. We're talking, I trusted Christ as an adult. So this is back in 1994. I think I was 24 years old or something like that. And there was a movie that had come out called Interview with a Vampire. Anybody seen that movie? Anybody remember that? Okay, I see a hand. Maybe not show your kids. I think it was rated R, but a really good movie if you're into that kind of thing. And uh, early on in this film, the lead vampire, Lestat, he turns another character, Louis, into a vampire like him. And the scene shows Louis struggling in pain as his body goes through this transition from vampire or from human to vampire. And then in an instant, like it's done. He's still, he's at peace, the process is completed, and Lestat says to Louis, now look at the world anew with your vampire eyes. And in the scene that follows then, they show Louis looking around in awe and experiencing the world like all afresh through these new eyes. His senses are enhanced, picking up on things he hadn't seen before. His sight is clearer now, colors are brighter, and he sees these other dimensions of the world, of reality that had seemed hidden to him before. So everything was new to him, everything was different, and yet in so many ways it was also the same. So I'd seen this movie, and then God saved me in the months that followed, gave me his spirit, and I remember then like thinking back to this movie and the feeling that in many ways 
when God saved me, it was kind of like what Louis had experienced. Seeing through new eyes. Things felt new to me. I felt new. The way I looked at and thought about the world, it changed, not in every way, but pretty substantially. The way I understood things and processed ideas and made decisions was different. My affections were new. I stopped doing and responding in certain ways in life and started doing and responding in other ways in my life. My life was increasingly becoming uncommon in the best sense of the word. I was seeing through new eyes and I was living differently as a result. Maybe some of you, if you came to trust in Christ, if he called you and saved you at a something other than as a child, maybe you experienced something similar. And what I've been describing here is a bit like what we're beginning to see increasingly show up as we move through Acts 1 and 2. And as we close out chapter 2 this morning, we're going to find God's people in Jerusalem seeing through new eyes as well. And while Rabbi Matt uh, served us super well last week in reminding us that there, there was already a gathered people of God prior to Acts 2, there's still an awful lot in Acts 2 that is at least new-ish for us to discover. Because in a very real way, with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, the church enters into a new apostolic age, a new season in salvation history, a new season of the Holy Spirit's working through his permanent indwelling of God's people. And what we find depicted for us as we walk through these final verses of Acts 2 is what John Calvin called a living portrait a living portrait that captures for us and summarizes the faith and practice of those in the Jerusalem church who had been called by God into faith in Jesus. And the big idea that I want to make sure we don't miss this morning is that the common life of this newly spirit-indwelled people of God, it isn't really common at all. Or to say it a little differently, the common life of God's spirit-indwelled people is uncommon. The common life of God's spirit-indwelled people is uncommon. And we're going to see this truth unfold into three parts as we walk through the passage this morning. We're going to see the uncommon commitments, the uncommon community, and the uncommon outcomes of God's spirit-indwelled people. And as we move into verse 42 now, we find the first of these three parts laid out for us. The uncommon commitments of God's spirit-indwelled people. Verse, two, verse 42 saying this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So God's people are at this turn of season. And what we get here is a bit of a thesis statement summarizing the uncommon commitments that shaped the daily lives of these Holy Spirit-indwelled believers in Jesus. Luke speaks of four things here that these believers were committed to that they were devoted to, he says. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And while I don't want to spend too much time in this, before we move any further than that, it's at least worth mentioning that there are a couple theories that scholars have related to the Greek grammar and syntax in this verse. And what they're trying to figure out is whether it's actually four commitments that are being talked about here or whether it's only two. Some scholars, uh, as you might think, uh, do suggest these were four separate commitments, each standing on their own. But the more compelling evidence, the more compelling arguments on this suggest that there's really only two unique commitments in this verse, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And 
And that position uh, that leaves us with the breaking of bread and the prayers serving to help us better understand some of the other practices that would always accompany then and now the apostles' teaching and biblical fellowship. So it leaves us with a paraphrase of verse 42 that sounds something like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, including the breaking of bread together and much prayer. But before we dissect these commitments any further, let's first look at what's behind our English word, or what's behind our English word devoted. Because in the Greek here, the word is proskartereo, proskartereo. And the emphasis of this Greek word, that's hard to say, is perseverance. God illustrating to us through Luke here that his people were devoted with perseverance to this manner of living. That they were persistent in their devotion to these practices. That they were steadfast in their practice of these disciplines. And that they adhered with strength to this pattern of faith. This is what Luke is meaning for us to understand. That these believers, out of the overflow of their faith in Jesus, with the divine aid now of the indwelling Holy Spirit, were persistently, consistently giving themselves to the practices of biblical teaching, biblical community, meals together, and prayer. Okay, so let's talk a bit about each of these uncommon commitments of God's people now. With the first and primary commitment being the apostles' teaching. And apostles here in verse 42, which literally means special messenger, uh, in this case, meaning those who Jesus gave a special commission to, who he gave authority to, to pass on his teachings. And most typically, as many of you will know, the title of apostle is used to speak of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And then it ends up later in God's word being also applied to the apostle Paul, to Barnabas, to James, and potentially a few others, depending on how you count and what translation you're looking at. And then the word here for teaching is the Greek word didache, meaning instruction, belief, or doctrine. And these are words that I'll use pretty interchangeably as we go through our time this morning. And this word, didache, uh, this word for teaching, is used elsewhere in Scripture as well, and it's probably worth us taking a look at a couple of other places where this shows up, just to give us a, a greater context of what we're talking about when we say apostles' teaching here. So in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus gives the Great Commission to the disciples, he's telling them to make disciples of all nations, which includes teaching them to observe, to obey or keep or hold fast to, all that Jesus had taught them and commanded them to do. We see this same idea in, uh, in the same word, Didache, in 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul uses, uh, uses it here to tell Timothy and us by extension to keep a close eye on two things, our lives, meaning our choices and our actions, and our doctrine, our beliefs, our theology, our Didache, and he's telling this to young Timothy as both a warning and as a way of encouraging him to believe and to teach only that which has been entrusted to him from the apostles. And this is also similar to what we see in Jude verse 3, where Jude warns followers of Jesus to be on guard against false teachers and false teachings when he pleads with us. We pleads with them in verse 3 to contend for the faith, the didache, the beliefs, that were once for all handed down and delivered to God's people, the saints. And we could go on and on with other passages as well. 
passages in Scripture where, where we see this urging and pleading and contending with those of us who claim Jesus as Lord for us to steadfastly adhere to the apostles' teaching. And why do we think that is? Well, it's, it's no wonder why sound teaching and sound doctrine would get so much emphasis from our perspective, is it? In 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Church, I'm curious this morning as you hear those words, if you can think of another time in your lives where those words have rang more true. We, we only need to turn on the news, or maybe it's even just in going into work or going into a grocery store, or depending where you live, maybe it's just walking out your front door and you're faced with the reality of these words of Paul. More than ever, up is called down, left is called right, and lies are called truth. Amen? John Calvin, in reference to this verse, he Uh, calls the apostles' teaching the very soul of the church, and he is right to do so. Because without sound doctrine, we become insulated from the only fully trustworthy source of objective truth that is available to us. Without sound teaching, we become indoctrinated with the wisdom of the world, far more so than the way of Jesus. And without sound teaching as our life's foundation, we become assimilated by the ever-changing cultural whims and dogmas of the moment. It's a wise and true saying that left to our own accord, we will always wander far from God. Okay, so we've talked about the apostles' teaching as the first uncommon commitment of the Acts 2 Christians here. And I want to pass over the second commitment on the list for a minute, and Go to the third and the fourth ones, which are the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then we'll come back to the second here in a few minutes. So let's talk briefly now about the breaking of bread. And for the most part, this is what it sounds like. It's a regular meal shared together in the spirit of Christian fellowship, which we'll talk about here much more in a few minutes. But I also want to make sure that we don't miss the symbolism of the breaking of bread language. It shouldn't be lost on us because it's this same Lord's Supper language that we read week to week in our remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice through the Lord's Supper, which is also the same language that was recorded first in the Gospels at the Last Supper. Reading from Luke here in chapter 22, verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this commitment of the Acts 2 Christians is born out of the Spirit's coming and causing them to be drawn to one another in this new way through these new eyes that the Spirit had given them. And this led them into this desire and commitment to persevere in having regular fellowship meals together with one another, which would have likely included a regular meal, the Lord's Supper, and time of prayer as well. Erasmus, a 16th century scholar and contemporary of Martin Luther, he spoke of such times together uh, that we get to enjoy as uh, 
times which provided the comfort of mutual discourse among believers. The comfort of mutual discourse. And I think we often miss the deep truth of what he's referring to here unless we pause to consider it now and again. That when we gather together like this today, or in our community groups, or in homes over a simple meal together with other believers in Jesus, there is this special kind of comfort and assurance that comes along with that. Can I get an amen from anybody in that? Yeah. Okay. On to the fourth uncommon commitment of our Acts 2 Christians, the prayers. And again here, this one is simple enough. They were joyfully and uh, committedly um, devoted to prayer and praying together. But there's a couple other things worth noting here before we quickly move past this. For example, did you notice, as we've read the passage and parts of it here a couple times already, that each of these commitments in verse 42 have the article in front of them? And by article, I mean the word the. So in verse 42, it says, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, some translators omit these articles because they feel a little bit clunky as we read through them, but they really are there behind the English in the Greek manuscripts, and scholars have debated pretty widely about what is meant by this. We can surmise with the teaching, that one's easy enough. We're not talking about just any teaching here, as we've discussed. We're talking about the scriptures, about the apostles' teachings, about Jesus, otherwise known to us here in the 21st century as uh, the Bible, the New Testament. Then there's the, the fellowship, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Then for the breaking of bread, we've already talked about the special nature of that fellowship meal. And for the prayers... Our best understanding of this is that it's probably talking about some of their prayer times being devoted to very specific prayers, perhaps even the Lord's Prayer, which would be a pattern that they would have been exposed to in the apostles' teaching. And the prayers also probably refers to these more specific and formal corporate times of prayer that were part of their common life together, which we'll talk about a little bit more when we get to verse 46. On the second point uh, that I want to make before we move past this is um, that they were committed to the prayers in such a um, in such an obvious way, in such a dedicated way, suggests to us here that they understand prayer as an expression of dependence, as an expression of dependence, and that's significant, isn't it? That's significant. And the reason is that when we find people who are committed to ongoing prayer like they were. We're finding a people who truly recognize their own position of need. And I'm going to meddle a little bit here. So can I ask gently, and this is for me as much as it is for you, I promise. But is that how you look at prayer? Is that how you look at prayer? With a heart orientation of full dependence on God. And with an active sense of your own position and need. You obviously don't have to answer that right now. Um, but regardless of how we would answer, my hope is that we would be encouraged by the fact that these Acts 2 Christians certainly did view prayer in that way. And that means that as spirit-indwelled believers in Jesus, we can choose to do so as well. Okay, let's back up now. We skipped over the second uncommon commitment of the Acts 2 Christians. 
and that is uncommon community. But before I uh, go into um, the meaning of those words, the meaning, what's behind fellowship, and all that comes with it, I want to just draw from a personal example. So uh, some of you know, probably not all of you, but many of you know that I spent a, a decent chunk from March through June, the better part of those months, in uh, the hospital last year, literally on the edge of death. I coded three times. They shocked me back. There's a whole long story there if you haven't heard parts of that already. So I spent a long time in the hospital, and the community, the fellowship that we're about to talk about is very real to me. And I hope that you have experiences like it as well, have had experiences like it as well. But for me, just one example of, of this is when I was in the hospital, so I wasn't aware of any, any of this, but my wife or uh, the Hackett's or um, where's the Martins? I see the Martins over there. They would have been there too. And maybe some of the rest of you as well. My understanding, I didn't see it firsthand, is that there, there was a, uh, that first night, there was a crowd of people in the waiting room. That we like filled the waiting room area. Patty and Jerry had one of their dogs up there. There was, for some, it would have been a little chaotic, but it was beautiful to me when I was coherent enough and well enough to hear that story of how the community of God's people, how many of you came and cared for me, cared for us, how you prayed together, how you uh, sacrificed for us. Like it was sustaining of my life. And I don't say that lightly, like it really was. To hear those things were sustaining to me of my time when I was there at, the, at death's door. It's, um, we have a new puppy uh, named Scout. And when Scout's confused, when, he doesn't understand, when she doesn't understand something, she'll like turn her head. You guys have seen dogs do that, right? Um, with this all going on in the waiting room while I was uh, being hooked up to life support, I imagine, or something like that, um, my parents, who were in Florida at the time, they had flown in, uh, and they walked in to that scene. And this was a head turn moment for my parents, who'd heard us describe community like this in the past and our experience of it in so many circumstances, back in Texas and then certainly here as well with many of you. And it was a head turn moment for them. They didn't understand it. I think it was even a little like overwhelming to them that so many people would be there. But later, I heard stories. I heard stories of them saying, like, man, like, you guys have really got some good people in your lives. Like, it was different to them in a, in a turning the head kind of a way. They didn't quite understand it, but they grew to become really super appreciative of it and they, as they saw how you all came and cared for our family. My uh, half-sister, who had flew in for that as well, um, when she left, I think, the, I think the Hackett's took her to the airport, and I think she he told me that she said something like, you guys have something really different, something really special uh, in the community of people that you're around in, the, in your friend group, I think is what she called it. And so I use that to say that everything we're going to talk about, this isn't just, this isn't just uh, words on a page. Like, this is real. This is real. This is a real thing, and it is life-sustaining for us at times. And so the degree to which you are missing out on this, I would strongly encourage you find a way to get involved in community around here. And if not here, somewhere else, so that you can experience all of what we're about to talk about. Verse 42, again, says, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And what this commitment's referring to is this church's uncommon life together, like the uncommon experience I just described, as where spirit-indwelled believers in Jesus 
are doing life together in a unique way. And this is what Luke is referring to here when he calls when he calls it the fellowship. And while the word here in English is fellowship, what stands behind it in the Greek Greek is a really cool word, cool word, koinonia. That's the Greek. Maybe some of you have heard that before. And to have koinonia with one another means to have a close personal relationship with, to have communion and involvement with, between, and for the benefit of one another as led by the Spirit. I wonder, for you guys, again, let me ask, have you experienced that? Is that something that sounds familiar to you? Let me flash forward a bit in our passage to the first half of verse 46 and give you an example of how they experience this kind of closeness and committed time together. Uh, In verse 46, hopefully it's on your screens, it talks about how they were gathering together every day and attending temple together to receive teaching and to pray. And where they were meeting together in each other's homes to share meals and to share the Lord's Supper. And we also see this kind of koinonia fellowship encouraged and even commanded at times through the dozens and dozens of one another passages in God's word, don't we? In a broader culture, uh, outside of the scripts, uh, the scriptures at that time, uh, this word koinonia was also used to describe sexual intimacy in marriage. So it's that level of closeness that this word uh, has connotations of. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of the depth of relationship and connection we have with God, too, which led John Stott, uh, author, pastor, scholar, in his writings on the topic to say that Christian fellowship is a Trinitarian experience, connecting what we share together in God to what we share outwardly with one another in relationship. And if you want a little homework for later, you can look up 1 John 1.3 and 2 Corinthians 13.14, which speak about the Trinitarian nature of the fellowship that we have with one another, this koinonia. And finally then, koinonia fellowship also quite often refers to the sharing of one's finances and belongings with those who have need, which is what we'll look at next. And to do that, I'm going to bypass uh, a verse again, verse 43 this time, and I promise we'll come back to that as well. So I'm going to pick up in verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So what we're seeing here in verses 44 and 45 is this further unpacking of the koinonia that we've already been discussing. They had all things in common, it says. And I looked up in the Greek, and all means all. And as need arose, some within their fellowship felt spirit-led to voluntarily and to sacrificially sell off certain belongings so that they could use the proceeds then uh, to help and care for one another. And keep in mind here, we're not talking about outreach. This isn't selling your stuff or donating your stuff and then using funds to, to reach out to others outside of the community. This is the interior life, the common life of the spirit-indwelled people of God and their kind of care for one another. And we see this elsewhere in the scriptures as well. We find Paul teaching something similar in Galatians 6.10 where he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Friends, we're called to such things. We're called to this special care and love and participation with one another that includes not only responsibility for the spiritual encouragement of one another, but also for our material and even financial care for one another as well. And for those of us who claim Jesus, like most of us today, I would assume, 
the attitude of our heart towards this kind of giving, towards this kind of generosity, both to the church and directly to one another, communicates something, doesn't it? It communicates something about who we believe to be the actual owner and giver of all that we possess. So koinonia, broad range of meanings that we've talked about, but here in this last point, it means also having a living, servant-hearted, sacrificial lifestyle as well. It's a life that these Acts 2 Christians were persevering in, and it's a life the Spirit invites us into as well. So, we've talked now about the uncommon commitments of God's Spirit-indwelled people. We've talked about the uncommon community of God's Spirit-indwelled people, and now we get to talk about the uncommon outcomes of God's Spirit-indwelled people. And there's three main outcomes that I want to highlight here, drawn from our passage. And the first one is the signs and wonders that operate within God's Spirit-indwelled people and the awe and reverence of God that they stir up. And for this, we need to go back to verse 43, which we just said passed over earlier. So let me read that for us now in context. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, the Greek word for fear here is phobos, which can mean fear in the traditional sense, the way that we think of it today. But even more so, it refers to this idea of awe and reverence or to an appropriate and fearful respect for the divine. That's more the idea of what's in mind here. And for this to be even more helpful, we need to remember that these are the people who had seen and felt the power of God through the winds of the Holy Spirit rushing in and filling the room that they were in. They'd seen and heard the tongues of fire, these languages of fire falling upon Jesus' followers, and I think that would be pretty awe-inspiring, right? But as we briefly touched on last week, Peter's teaching, uh, starting at about verse 16 of chapter 2, was that the former words of the prophet Joel were about to come true. And that the prophecy of Joel here included not only the pouring out of the Spirit, but also a promise of signs and wonders that would accompany this as well in both the heavens and on earth. So it's likely Luke had all of this in mind in his writing of verse 43, and that all these things together serve to stir up awe and fear and reverence in the one true God among those who are already believing and probably among the outsiders as well. But even without any of that, I think the outcome of signs and wonders and awe and reverence would still be present. Now this one is for free. This is not in the text this is Shane, not the Lord. But I think just the spiritual witness alone created by this group of people living in this kind of a committed obedience to the Spirit's leading and when seeing the fruit that experienced as a result as well, this would have been plenty awe-inspiring by itself, no? So it's the signs and wonders that operate within God's Spirit-indwelled people, and it's the awe and reverence of God that they stir up that are the first uncommon outcome that we observe here in our passage. The second outcome we find here in our passage is hearts of joy, thanksgiving, and praise. Picking up in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now, we'd already talked about this first part, them attending the temple together daily, and as we talked about the koinonia fellowship of these believers. 
But what we didn't talk about yet was the heart towards God that they shared during this earliest of seasons in the Christian church. And that's what we find here at the end of verse 46, where we're told that they received their food with gladness and with generous hearts, that they were praising God for his kingdom and for his favor in blessing him, blessing them the way that he had. And in this, we see an authenticating mark of sorts for identifying devoted, spirit-led communities of Jesus' followers. And this is the second outcome, the second uncommon outcome of God's spirit-indwelled people, a heart of orientation of joy, thanksgiving, and praise. The third uncommon outcome that we see here in our passage is spirit-led evangelism and conversions. So on the heels of the the, uh, the hearts of gladness and thanksgiving for God's favor that we just talked about, we find here in verse 47 that they were praising God, it says, and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here at the end of 47, God's people are busy enjoying favor in all of the community, which then God uses day after day after day to draw people to himself in a saving way and to add more and more spirit-indwelled people into the family of God. Daryl Bach, uh, one of my seminary professors, uh, said it well in his commentary where he says, a vibrant community always extends itself in two directions, toward God and toward neighbor. And we find this exemplified in the lives of these Acts 2 believers, don't we? But this is the beauty of God's calling on his people to focus so heavily on the internal life of their fellowship with God and one another. Because when we look at scripture, and hopefully from our own experience as well, we find that it's nearly always in churches committed to this kind of internal life that we find the most consistent spirit-led overflow into missions and evangelism happening as well. Amen? Sound City the common life of God's spirit-indwelled people is uncommon. And this common life that God has called us to, that we see so clearly here in the Acts 2 believer community, it only becomes common to us through the new eyes of faith that God gives us and gives all of his spirit-indwelled people. Sound City, may we always be a people found in active pursuit in a growing, persevering pursuit of the blessings that come from the apostles' teaching and of the koinonia fellowship that we're glimpsing today in Acts 2. And may we always be a people found full of steadfast hope in seasons packed full of God's grace and of gospel progress and in seasons of trial, where the aspiration of what we've seen here in Acts 2 seems very far from our grasp. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the example of the Acts 2 believers and the realization that with you, such fellowship, when grounded in your word, is genuinely attainable for us. Help us to really believe this, God. Help us, Father, to trust and depend on you in the ways we see here in the Acts 2 community and encourage us through your indwelling spirit today and every day. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.